right, well, hello, everybody, and welcome to, man, this is going to be a fun show. One of my favorite topics, evolution, and and what I really want to hope you see is that religious belief is not the only reason to reject or sorry, yeah, to reject evolution. It's not just because the Bible says so. And so in this show, what I want to do is go through some of the best scientific evidence for evolution, show where that really doesn't maybe fit as well as we think it does, and then look at some reasons why, hey, creationism is scientific. And so joining me to do that is Dr. Fazal Rana. He is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He has written or contributed to this new book, Thinking About Evolution, 25 Questions That Christians Want Answered. He's also written many other books like Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth, Who Was Adam, The Cell's Design, and many more. So Dr. Rana, thank you so much for coming on and joining me. Hey, Ryan, thanks for having me. Yeah, and this is Fuzz's second, third time on the show. The first time we talked about Neanderthals and uh, evidence for creation from um, biochemistry, because that is your expertise is in biochemistry. And then actually the last time you joined me was on your last book, which is a little bit different outside of maybe your field of expertise on uh, transhumanism. And so that was a, a fun interview. So I think maybe we're getting maybe back more into your expertise, maybe if you would say that, in, in the topic of evolution uh, and looking at biochemistry. And so... Or, um, yeah, so to kind of start, I just would love to kind of know kind of your your history kind of in this topic of evolution, how you kind of yeah. got involved in this topic and, and how biochemistry relates to it. Because maybe some people go, well, that's more biology. You should have a evolutionary biologist talk about evolution. Why do you have a biochemist? So how does biochemistry yeah. relate to evolution as well? Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I guess kind of got involved in this whole discussion about is there a scientific case for uh, biological evolution? Uh, when I probably, it first began when I was a graduate student. Uh, I was uh, an agnostic when I was an undergraduate student studying uh, chemistry and biology. I took quite a bit of courses in, in biology because I was interested in going initially to medical school and then later decided I wanted to become a biochemist. And uh, and uh, I was doing everything I could to prepare myself to go to graduate school to, to get a PhD in biochemistry. And through my coursework, embraced the, the evolutionary paradigm. You know, I readily accepted the idea that the origin of life and the, the fundamental basic design of life, as well as the history of living systems and the biodiversity that we see in the world today and throughout life's history made sense from an evolutionary perspective. I didn't necessarily see any reason to question that idea. As a graduate student, when I began to really plumb the depths of, of biochemical systems, which really are the fundamental systems of, of life, I uh, first of all appreciated the elegance and the sophistication of uh, you know, biochemical systems, which to me uh, pointed to the work of a designer. And I also recognized the failure of chemical evolutionary scenarios to account for the origin of life and hence the origin of biochemistry. And it was at that point I became convinced that there must be a creator that was responsible for bringing life into existence. And that then led to my ultimate conversion to Christianity, that recognition. But what was significant there was uh, for the first time there was, in my mind, very real scientific evidence that indicated that the grand claim of the evolutionary paradigm 
didn't hold up, namely mm. that mechanism alone could explain everything we see in biology. And in this instance, as we were, the, the focus was the origin of life and the origin of biochemical systems. Now, at that point in time, I kind of adopted a view that would be called theistic evolution, where I thought, well, once this creator brought the very first cells into existence, from that point on, evolutionary processes could explain, the, again, the history of life. And it was really a number of years later that um, I began to question that assertion as well. And what triggered that were, were a number of books. One was uh, a book by Stuart Kaufman. I can't remember the title, but he's uh, uh, kind of involved in complexity theory. And he had a book where he was arguing that, uh, that natural selection operating on genetic variation could explain uh, variation within a species and speciation, but it could not account for the origin of biological novelty. That is, that there needed to be something else uh, that, 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 that uh, the mechanisms available for microevolution couldn't explain uh, the origin of, of novelty. Another book that was impactful was actually uh, a book uh, by Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Aldrich, which was on punctuated equilibrium. And here was this non-Darwinian idea being presented uh, for, uh, for an accounting for features uh, in the fossil record, that it wasn't gradualism, but there was something else that seemed to be driving innovation in the biological, uh, in the, in biological history. And then I read a book by an agnostic by the name of Michael Denton called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. And it's really those three books that caused me to, to begin to question whether or not the evolutionary mechanisms could really explain the totality of life. Uh, I already, you know, again, was convinced that this wasn't possible for the origin of life. And as I began to delve into it, I began to see places that I would call uh, significant cracks in the paradigm uh, that, that evolutionary mechanisms didn't, sorry, didn't seem to be able to account for things like the origin of eukaryotic cells or uh, the Cambrian explosion or other types of significant events yeah. in life's history. And, and so that point, I really became, um, I wouldn't say, uh, I, uh, I wouldn't say an anti-evolutionist, but became skeptical about the grand claim that everything in biology can be explained through mechanism. Uh, in my mind, uh, current evolutionary theory and even uh, some alternative ideas that are non-Darwinian in nature simply don't provide us with the explanatory power for the key transitions in life's history. Again, that would be the origin of life, the origin of eukaryotic cells, the origin of body plans. And I'm thinking about things now in an, in an animal-centric you know, framework. Uh, but even things like the origin of consciousness or the origin of human exceptionalism seem to defy uh, an evolutionary explanation. And so to me, that I think opens up the, the possibility for us to be legitimate skeptics for scientific reasons of, again, the grand claim of, of the evolutionary paradigm. But it doesn't necessarily mean we have to reject the totality of evolutionary theory. That is that there are, I think, certain aspects of uh, life's history and uh, biodiversity that can be readily accounted for through mechanism, but I think there's other aspects that 
requires something beyond mechanism, uh, namely the work of, of a mind or of, of an agent. Yeah, you know, and that's so good. And, and I'm so glad that you kind of have worked through and explained all of that. Because again, like, one thing I heard leading up to this in my research, and as I was looking online is the comment over and over, and we'll see it coming up here in a little bit, is that, you know, Christians are just kind of plugging their ears and just believing whatever the Bible says, and they're not aware of the evidence, they don't know the evidence, if they seriously looked at science, and they would realize that evolution is true. And so for you, being someone who not only is a biochemist uh, from Ohio Ohio University, I believe, and um, and being an evolutionist, and then going from a, to a theistic uh, evolutionist, and then to a creationist and old earth creationist, is is it's not like you're just a born and raised Christian who's been ignorant of the evidence and just rejects evolution because the Bible says so. You really have good reason for that. And so hopefully in this show, that's my goal is to help other people see those holes of why they should too be skeptical of evolution as hey, this is a weekly show where I try to help you think deeply about what Christians believe, know how to defend it, and then faithfully live it out. So this is the defense of a creation view and what the Bible has to say about that. And so one question I do have leading into this is, is it makes sense to me why a secularist not believing in a creator would believe in evolution? It seems like it's kind of the best option other than creation if there is no God. But what I have a hard time seeing is is the theistic evolution perspective. Why someone who does believe that there's a God, why they would reject creation, why they would reject uh, the God creating everything and, and hold to those aspects of evolution. What is it about the scientific data that would even convince someone who believes that God is powerful to create still hold to evolution? Yeah, well, you know, and if I could make this point, hopefully in response to your question, and if not, just ask the question again. Yeah. But, but you know, I think what you're, you're bringing up, though, is that there's more than just the scientific evidence alone that influences how we interpret the record of nature. So, you know, if, if you hold to a, a materialistic worldview, you know, uh, an atheistic or a naturalistic worldview, then, of course, if the universe is all that there is, was, and, and ever will be, then you are going to look for mechanistic explanations. And everything you see in the record of nature, you're going to interpret through that lens. So at that point, it, the question isn't, is evolution true or not? It's how did evolution happen? That really is the only question that you can, you can ask from a materialistic framework. Yeah. Now, like, but now from a, a Christian worldview perspective, uh, you have options. You could say, well, it could be mechanism or it could be the work of a creator. And if a creator is at work, it could be through process or it could be through intervention. So you've, you've got a greater range of options. And so there's nothing wrong, I believe, that if you are a Christian of, 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 of recognizing that you have additional options to explain features in nature and, and appealing to those or relying on those, that is, that's not irrational. That's not, you know, uh, being, you know, driven by theology or biblical exegesis in your interpretation of nature. But it's, I think it's a reasonable position to hold. But, you know, another thing that comes into play is that within science today, there is a philosophical framework that, that dictates how science operates, and it's called methodological naturalism. And the idea behind methodological naturalism is that whether you believe God exists or not doesn't matter when you engage in the scientific project. 
you operate uh, methodologically as if you were a naturalist, as if you were a philosophical naturalist or a materialist. Sometimes it's called benchtop atheism or uh, um, provisional atheism, where, again, you know, you are suspending belief in the supernatural, you're suspending belief in God, and you're only pursuing mechanistic explanations. And so what that means is that when you come to the origin of life and you say, well, there is no bona fide explanation for how life could have originated through, through chemical evolution, and in fact, we see pointers that suggest the work of a mind, you can't entertain that as a, a viable option scientifically because of the influence of methodological naturalism. Therefore, you, you'll hear people say, well, this is just simply a problem that's harder than we thought, that this is uh, maybe an impenetrable scientific mystery, but yet there's still this conviction that it's mechanism that explains it. But that conviction is not arising out of the data, but rather it is arising really out of a philosophical commitment to how you're going to engage in science. So likewise, when it comes to things like, how do we explain the origin of eukaryotic cells? How do we explain the Cambrian explosion and the origin of body plans? Well, there are evolutionary models out there. They're just not very compelling uh, for, for, uh, in terms of accounting for these events. Uh, and, and yet there's also signatures associated with these events that suggest a creator's involvement. And, and so, you know, to me, I think that the larger point here is that there are indeed, you know, philosophical, uh, you know, convictions that actually influence how people are interpreting the scientific record. There are worldview considerations as well. And so we shouldn't apologize for utilizing the full resources within our worldview to explain features in nature. And it doesn't mean that when we do so, we're operating in an, in an anti-scientific manner or in a, a theologically driven manner. Yeah, and that's one thing I love. And, and Frank Turk says is, you know, science doesn't say anything scientists do. And and just kind of trying to point out the the importance of recognizing the worldview in which we approach the data can cause us to see data in different ways. And so what we should be doing is trying our best to to kind of remove our bias, so to speak, and not just simply let our worldview dictate everything, but but to recognize we have that bias and then apply it and take that into consideration as we evaluate it. And so that's my my, my attempt. And what I want to talk about with you in the show is, is to do kind of that. And my way and my attempt of kind of recognizing my bias is to address the best evidence for evolution that we can. And so I reached out to Twitter and I researched and I looked at a lot of different places trying to find videos on YouTube to to find what is the most popular, what is, and, and the best is kind of subjective because uh, because different people will say this convinced me and then this convinced me. And so you might be watching right. this and go, well, that wasn't the best. Well, sorry, um, <laughs> I tried to reach out as many people as I could and I would love more interaction. And if you have evidence that you want us to discuss, comment live. If you're watching after the fact, join live to comment. But uh, that's what I want to do is try to address some of that best evidence that we can uh, to to show kind of what you're saying and, and to look at this in that scientific way, not just simply God did it or the Bible kind of says so. But um, it's important to recognize, as you point out there, the worldview aspect. So jumping into some of this evidence, um, I think if you were to ask anyone, when I ask students and I say, you know, uh, evolution's true. Yes. Okay. Why do you believe it? They just say fossils. 
Um, and so this is probably one of the most common responses is just that the fossil record uh, has to show that evolution is true. And so um, what is it about the fossil record, I guess I could say? Uh, it's just kind of in basic terms, if you could lay out kind of what is it about the fossil record that makes people believe evolution is true? And then we'll kind of start to look at some of the ways in which uh, maybe it doesn't fit as well as we think it does. Yeah, well, you know, um, the fossil record essentially shows us that there is a, a history of life on Earth that goes back arguably to 3.8 billion years ago. So we see, again, a, a history of life on Earth where there are organisms that existed in the past that don't exist today. And uh, there is a, a progression in the fossil record from simple life forms to increasingly complex life forms. And again, there are different life forms that existed at different times or different eras in Earth's history. And so there is a history of life on Earth. And again, there is a progression to that history. And so in, 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 by definition, you could say there is an evolutionary history to life on Earth. Now, it doesn't mean that that history can be explained through exclusively through mechanism alone, but there is a, an evolutionary history to life on Earth. And... Um, you know, and there there are, uh, you know, organisms that could be quote unquote understood as being transitional in nature, that that seemingly you know again document these evolutionary transitions. And so, this would be in a sense, in a nutshell, why people would turn to the fossil record and say, well, the fossil record seems to indicate again, you know, a a, a history to life on Earth and and an evolutionary history. And so my I, I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts on on my responses, I guess, maybe is is to me the fossil record of saying here are similarities, right? You, you see, I guess, the fossil record in a few different ways is you see similar fossils between apes and humans. If you, you look at the skull and you can see those comparisons online, as well as you have homology, right? So you have similar fossil structures and you see pictures of like whales, bats, humans, and, you know, horses that have a very similar forearm bone structure. Um, and that can you can have one option again when we go back to worldview of an explanation of that could be a common ancestor that that would make sense of the common bone structure comes from a common ancestor uh, however i think a common creator also makes a lot of sense and that's why when you when you have that option on the table when your worldview allows for a creator to me a common creator makes so much more sense of similar creators make things that look similar you have architects that make similar looking buildings uh, is that a fair evaluation of the fossil record when you do kind of step back and let the worldview open up another option that it kind of just, I don't know, to me, it just makes so much more sense. Yeah. And, and, and let me preface my, my response to your question with, with a, a, a comment. And that is there's another philosophical consideration here. That's really very important when we're thinking about, again, features like the fossil record, or as you're pointing out homologies, and, and that would be something known as the underdetermination problem. Now that's a $25 you know, term there that simply means that, uh, that theories are underdetermined by data. Now, what, what the implications of that mean is that you can have the same set of data and two radically different theories can explain that same set of data, can readily accommodate that same set of data. So, it's interesting to note that prior to Darwin, biology was a teleological enterprise, meaning it was design-oriented. 
where people saw a creator's handiwork, where they saw bona fide design, you know, in the structure of living organisms, where they saw the history of life on earth as being a, a, a series of progressive creation acts on the part of a creator. This was Louis Agassiz, the, the famous geologist's view of the fossil record, and others shared that view. People like Richard Owen said, well, the, the shared features that we see, the homologies, reflect uh, basically an archetype that exists in the mind of a creator that's then functionally manifested uh, in the created order uh, in these various designs. And, and so uh, here, are, here are these theistic-oriented, teleologically-driven models that explain the fossil record, that explain homologies. What Darwin did when he came along with his theory of evolution was not only explain the origin of species, but he then argued that this mechanism of natural selection could be extrapolated to explain large-scale biological changes. And then he even suggested that the design that we see is actually the product of natural selection, not the mind. So Darwin re replaced mind with mechanism, and this is why it's called the Darwinian revolution. And, and so the point though being this, is that Darwin then evolutionized uh, the idea of the archetype where instead of it being a shared, or, or sorry, an archetypical design that exists in the mind of a, of a creator, it became the hypothetical common ancestor, right? Where the history of life on our earth now reflected the workings of natural selection, not the progressive acts of creation on the part of a creator. So again, this is going back to the, maybe a common theme here, and that is philosophy does play a role in how we interpret the record of nature, but it, you could come to the table with a creation model that could explain the best evidence that people can cite in favor of the evolutionary paradigm. It doesn't mean somebody's irrational to view that evidence as evidence for an evolutionary history to life, but it also means that people can be scientifically sound and rational as well and view that same evidence from a design or a creation model standpoint. And, and so, you know, back to your, your, your answers, which I think are very good answers, by the way. Think about, um, think about the, the, the history of the automobile, right? You know, over, I don't know, 120 something years, 150 years, there have been various designs for automobiles, right? And so when we look at the, the different designs for automobiles, we see an evolutionary history uh, of sorts, but we don't look at the, the design of automobiles and say, well, this is a history that's driven by mechanism. We say, this is a history that's driven by designers, where designers have an archetype that all automobiles share. And that is new innovation happens in automotive technology. There's a, there are archetypes that are stacked on top of each other that then become the new archetype for future generations. And so we see right. this progression of forms where you could argue there are automotive transitional intermediates in that sequence, but nobody looks at that history of automobiles and, and is uncomfortable with the idea that this is the work of, of designers or the work of minds uh, as opposed to mechanism. And so likewise, when we look at the fossil record, we could view the fossil record in that same way, that there is a, a, a 
progression of designs that are archetypes that are being stacked on top of each other to create new archetypes uh, as we go through the history of life on Earth. And I think that's a great point because as I have brought that up before, a common response I get is, but we know that those designers exist. We know that car producers exist. And so it's easy to say, yeah, the car was designed because we know those designers exist. We don't know if God exists. And I go, exactly. That's why we have to take a step back and ask the question, does God exist? And deal with that presupposition because, yeah, that's often the response is, but look at this design. Look at these archetypes that we see but we know they exist, exactly. It comes back down well, to philosophy. Well, and this is where the watchmaker argument now becomes really important uh, because you know William Paley gets a really bad rap in, in my yeah. estimation. He's actually one of my favorite thinkers, I, one of my heroes, if you will, intellectual heroes. It, because when Paley was advancing the watchmaker argument, and I've, I hear the same criticism of the watchmaker argument where Paley is saying, you know, if you compare a watch to a rock, there are certain attributes that a watch have that indicates to us that this is the work of a mind, right? And, and so, and of course, Paley knew that a watch was designed by a watchmaker, right? He knew that. But his question was, well, what is it about the watch that tells us that it's the work of a watchmaker, not natural processes? And there are certain attributes that it has that we would then call design, right? As a or he would he used the term contrivance. Well, Paley then pointed out that when we look at biological systems, they appear to be contrivances. They have these same properties. And so the reason, yes, we do know that there were automotive designers, and that's why we're comfortable interpreting the history of automobiles from a design framework. But if we didn't know that, we would still be reasonable to conclude that there were designers because there are attributes that the automobile possesses that are contrivances that reflect design. And those are the same attributes that we see, you know, in biological systems. And so nobody's design, denying design in biology, right? I mean, Richard Dawkins in, in The Blind Watchmaker in the introduction says biology is a study of complicated things that have the appearance of being designed for a purpose. In, and so his whole argument is, that natural selection can account for that design. We don't need a mind. But the, the first reaction is that these systems are designed. Or, you know, another point of philosophy here, and this is the concept of, of teleonomy. Uh, and, 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 you know, as I mentioned before, bio, the history of biology was design-oriented. It was teleological, which means design and, and purpose, right? And, and biologists cannot escape using design language when they describe biological systems. They can't escape using teleological language where they talk about things as if they were designed for a purpose. And in the 1950s, a philosopher of science coined the term teleonomy to basically say, well, we can use biolog biological designs are not really des designed by a mind, but, and, and so therefore, we can use design language in a guilt-free way because when we use that language, you don't really mean it's designed in a teleological sense. And so he coined the term teleonomy to say, well, it's designed in a, where natural selection is that designer. But the point, larger point is that, that the same kinds of features that we see in human designs or what we see in biological designs that again, uh, naturally cause us to use design language. 
we don't use that kind of language when we study Earth systems or when we study astronomical systems or when we're working in chemistry or in physics. But mm. somehow in biology, we can't escape design language, which should be telling us something, right? That, that there is an appearance of design. And maybe it, if something appears to be designed for a purpose, maybe it was designed for a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And I, it's so good to kind of think through and, and, and work through some of those details of design and, and how that works. I want to jump to uh, one of the evidences for uh, f- from the fossil record. Uh, this actually comes from Jerry Coyne's book, Why Evolution is True. This is actually, I'll be honest, this was given to me by an atheist about two years ago. He said, you have to read this. This will convince you about evolution. And I'm not joking. After reading it, I was more convinced of creation. Uh, Many times over, he kept saying, there is no theory of creation that can explain any of this. I'm like, actually, I know of a few. Um, And so it just, to me, it was not well argued for. But here's one point um, on a fossil that you sometimes hear of frequently, uh, the Tiktaalik fossil, which is shown to be one of the intermediate species. And here's what Jerry Coyne writes. He says, the best way to experience the drama of evolution is to see the fossils for yourself, or better yet, handle them. My students had this chance when Neil brought a cast of Tiktaalik to class, passed it around, and showed how it filled the bill of a true transitional form. This was, to them, the most tangible evidence that evolution is true. How often do you get to pursue, how often do you get to put your hands on a piece of evolutionary history, much less one that might have been your distant ancestor? So this is one of, uh, as Jerry Coyne points out, one of the, the best ways to see that evolution is true is the Tiktaalik fossil, a true transitional form. What would be a Christian response to the Tiktaalik fossil? And maybe if you could explain it to, for those who don't know what the Tiktaalik fossil is. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, one of the, the key events in life's history is the first appearance of vertebrates on land. And so these would be called tetrapods. Tetra means four, pod means foot, four-footed creatures. And the, the very first tetrapods would be amphibians, uh, creatures like acanthostega and ichthyostega would be the, probably the very first amphibians, the very first tetrapods on the land. And the, the evolutionary model argues that it was uh, lobed-thinned fish that evolved at the water's edge to, uh, to they, they evolved from, again, lobed-thinned fish into uh, these, you know, tetrapods, these, these very first land vertebrates. And they, they argue that if that was the case, then we would expect to discover in the fossil record these organisms that would be a kind of a melding of lobe-finned fish and tetrapods. And so they're, they're, you know, lovingly referred to as fishopods. And so Tiktaalik is one of a number of these kind of quote-unquote transitional forms that have been discovered that have a mosaic of uh, lobe-finned fish and tetrapod features. And uh, this event began presumably about 385 million years ago and was completed, I don't know, roughly 365 million years ago. Now, the problem is that um, when you look at the, 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 the so-called fishopod fossils, and Tiktaalik isn't the only species, uh, there's other ones as well uh, that are part of that you know, collection of fishopods. When you look at the sequence in the fossil record, what you see are those that are, w- would be dubbed an- more ancestral and those that would be dubbed more advanced are completely out of sequence. The more advanced ones show up earlier, 
than the more primitive ones or the ones with the more greater collection of ancestral states. So for example, Tiktaalik does not have bona fide fingers, but rather fins, but there are creatures that precede it in the fossil record that are fishapods that actually have the, you know, the bona fide finger type structure. And, and so uh, things are out of order. This is called uh, by paleontologists a, a temporal paradox. Also that transition happens in a relatively narrow window of time. It's a dramatic transition to go from an aquatic creature to a terrestrial creature. And, and you would expect that to be a protracted transition, but it happens very rapidly where these transitional forms are all co-occurring in the fossil record are more or less are, are overlapping and co-occurring. And so you don't see this nice evolutionary sequence, but everything is all jumbled and in, in out of order. Again, it, it's a temporal paradox. Well, uh, in 2010, a team of Polish uh, paleontologists discovered footprints for a contestega, which is the very first tetrapod that dated at, at 400 million years in age that were 15 million years earlier than the first fishapods. And so you, you already have evidence that there were tetrapods on the land before we see evidence for these um, fishapods, you know, like Tiktaalik in the fossil record. So to me, uh, there are things that don't hang together very well. You know, when, when I was in, in high school, I was a bit of a troublemaker and I would get called to the principal's office all the time. And, he, and I learned very quickly that if I was going to fabricate some kind of plausible if I was going to create plausible deniability, if I was going to fabricate some kind of tale to, to uh, get myself out of trouble, all the details had to fit my story. And if they didn't, there was good reason to, for this, the principle to be suspicious. Well, th the same thing should be true in science, that if, if the details don't hang together, even though, broadly speaking, the evidence may seem compelling, if the details don't match what you would expect, this is reason to be a little bit suspicious. And, and in fact, when the, the footprints were discovered in 2010, the late Jenny Clack, who was a, is a very well-known uh, paleontologist studying, again, the fishapods, who died just a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, basically said, well, at this point, we have to conclude that none of these fishapods in the fossil record are actually legitimate transitional forms they, they would be examples of what we think these transitional forms would look like, but they're not actually mm. part of that transition because they occur too late you know, in the sequence. Yeah. So now, now, could we interpret the Tiktaalik and other fishapods from a creation model perspective? Of course we could, because these creatures are perfectly designed to live at the water's edge. This is exactly how you would design creatures if they were going to live at the water's edge. And when we as human beings create designs, many times our designs are mosaics of, uh, of existing designs, right? So just because you see mosaics in the, as transitional forms doesn't mean they can't be designed. So the, the, the example that we're all familiar with would be smartphones that we use today. Now, right. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when people had cell phones and then <laughs> when there were iPods that were separate and then people had digital cameras. Right. I just found my iPod when moving into my new home. I opened a box and my iPod was sitting there. <laughs> yeah, well, I still, you know, I'm such a dinosaur. I still use my, my iPod classic that I got, you know, about 20 years ago now. Yeah. You know, but 
you know, but the point is, is that the, the smartphone is, is really a mosaic of designs of pre-existing technologies that were melded into a single design. And so if you uh, were an evolutionary biologist and you had a digital camera and you had an iPod and you had a cell phone and you saw the smartphone, you would say, well, look, this smartphone is, the mosa is a mosaic of designs. This must be the transitional form that demonstrates an evolutionary history, uh, you know, where maybe this was the, uh, a transitional form that was reflecting some kind of intermediate state from a common ancestor that then gave rise to iPods and the digital cameras and to cell phones, right? We don't interpret it that way, but that's exactly how an evolutionary biologist would interpret uh, these kind of artifacts if they found them. So, uh, so the, you know, to me, these quote-unquote transitional forms, it, it, I, if you're, again, a materialist or, a, 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 you know, a, a naturalist, I, you know, I could easily see why you could say, well, yeah, this fits my, my interpretation of life's history, but it's not the only explanation because, again, of this underdetermination problem right. where two different theories could account for the same data. Right. No, and I think that's so good. And I hope what, what people hear, and, and this is what I do in my talk on evolution, is um, whenever, and I hear it frequently like on Twitter or online as people bring up the Tiktaalik, uh, but whenever I read it in like an, a, what I guess is more of like a scholarly article, I always look at the date of publication and it's always dated before 2010 uh, because in 2010 that discovery was made and I haven't seen much used since then. And so I feel like what, what, had, what comes up are people seeing older publications. And so my encouragement to those watching is if you see something written about the Tiktaalik being this amazing transitional fossil, look at the date of that publication, whether it's before or after 2010. Now, before we move on, because my goodness, we're, we're almost 40 minutes in and, and, I, and there's way more evidence I want to talk to, about, especially about DNA and, and chromosomes, but um, a response to transitional forms. So as I was looking up, another common evidence given for a transitional form is the Archaeopteryx, if I'm saying that right, which is a transitional form between reptile and bird. And uh, one article was, was presenting this as this great transitional form and said, now a Christian will say that this is just pure bird. Um, it fits into a bird category that's not transitional. Uh, but then it says this, um, and I thought this was interesting, is this is a quote again. It says, creationists, though, dismiss these fossil studies. They argue that Archaeopteryx is not a missing link between reptiles and birds. It is just an extinct bird with reptilian features. They want evolutionists to produce a weird chimeric monster that cannot be classified as belonging to any known group. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this before we transition to another category of evidence of when we're looking at transitional fossils and we say, well, no, that fossil fits into this group. Uh, is that how a, an evolutionist would evaluate transitional fossils? Or, or is it fair to say we want something really that fits somehow weirdly in the middle that doesn't classify as either when we're getting that transition? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, um, I, you know, I think it's important to note that evolutionary biologists today would actually argue that uh, birds did not evolve from reptiles, but actually birds are uh, essentially dinosaurs that did not go extinct. And so hmm. they, they see dinosaurs as being both avian and non-avian dinosaurs and argue that both the avian and non-avian dinosaurs, by the way, were feathered creatures. So that in, in, a, in a cluster that would be known as avian dinosaurs, that 
again, didn't go extinct. They're, they're still here with us. Uh, and, and, and if that's the case, then Archaeopteryx would be, is classified as being a, a bird, right? It's, it's grouped with the Archaeornithines, uh, which are the ancient birds. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, and, you know, we see this temporal paradox again when it comes to bird origins, where the feathered dinosaurs that presumably would be the transitional form leading up to the true birds actually appear in the fossil record after uh, we see the very first appearance of, of, of Archaeopteryx. But, you know, again, uh, this goes back to the point of, you know, uh, mosaic features aren't are, again, um, reasonable, you know, evidence that one could interpret as evidence for evolutionary transitions, but it, it could also, again, be understood as, as uh, you know, again, consistent with the work of a designer where a melding of these mosaic features may have made perfect sense in that particular ecological environment that, that uh, Archaeopteryx found itself in. So there's a number of different ways that we could go with this. But again, similar to Tiktaalik, uh, we, you know, where we see that temporal paradox, we see the same thing when it comes to you know, the, the, the origin of birds as well. I appreciate that. Awesome. All right. So we're going to switch gears and now I'm going to jump to uh, the famous Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, biologist, and uh, giving what he says is the best evidence for evolution. Do you think there could be one sentence that could convince, um, let's say, a creationist to seriously doubt their theory? Not sure about a, about a sentence. I think perhaps the single most convincing fact, the observation that you could point to would be the, um, the pattern of resemblances that you see when you compare the genes using modern DNA techniques, actually looking at the letter-to-letter -letter correspondences between genes. Compare the genes of any pair of animals you like, uh, pair of animals, pair of plants, and then plot out the resemblances and they fall in a perfect hierarchy, a perfect family tree. And the only alternative to it being a family tree is that the intelligent designer deliberately set out to deceive us in the most underhand and devious manner. Um, <laughs> more, moreover, the same thing works with, with every gene you do separately, and even pseudogenes that don't do anything but are vestigial relics of genes that once, that once did something. All right, so first... Uh... He has two things here, really. Uh, one is that genes uh, and looking at the structure of the genetics is one of the best proofs of evolution. And then two, the only way to explain it is that, because if you believe in the creation view, then God is extremely deceptive. I guess God was creating, making it look like evolution and deceiving us. So uh, how would you give a response here to what he says is the, the best fact observation of evolution? Yeah, and you know, to, to be fair, again, when you, you see you know, these extensive homologies within nature, which would be shared features, you know, for, for many people, again, those shared features, again, reflect an evolutionary history. And today, homologies are you know, so intertwined with the evolutionary framework that we forget that the concept of homology predates uh, the theory of evolution. Uh, and we mentioned earlier, you know, Sir Richard Owen was uh, one of the, was is considered the father of comparative anatomy, and he was the scientist who probably did the most to elaborate the concept 
of homology. And again, interpreted homologies are these shared features as reflecting an archetypical design that existed in the mind of the creator that was functionally manifested in the created order. And again, Darwin comes along and he, and he evolutionizes this idea of the archetype, converting it into a common ancestor. And so when, when we look at the shared features that we see in genomes, uh, we could, I think, are legitimate to say that those shared features, again, reflect shared design as opposed to shared evolutionary ancestry. But, you know, the thing, the, 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 the problem here is that what Dawkins is presenting is, a, is an idealized description of the relationship among these shared features. You know, and, and it is true that you can take these shared features and you can build these evolutionary trees whether those shared features are morphological or whether they are, gen are genetic. But there is this nagging problem in evolutionary biology that isn't actually often discussed, but is prevalent in the scientific literature. And it's essentially called incongruent phylogenies, the problem of incongruent phylogenies, meaning that you can use morphological features and you get one evolutionary tree. Then if you use genetic features to build the trees, you get a very different tree that looks that shows very different sets of relationships or you can go from one gene to another and you get a very different evolutionary tree from region of the genome to region of the genome in fact this problem is persi even persists when you do entire genome comparisons where you still have this issue of incongruent phylogenies and so to me that is 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 problematic you know that it, it's saying that you, that you don't necessarily get this nice, neat, clean evolutionary story that is consistent regardless of the features that you're looking mm -hmm. at, but you get very different evolutionary trees. Uh, and again, this is the problem of incongruent phylogenies. So uh, to me, that is a, a, an indication that maybe the evolutionary interpretation isn't, isn't actually correct. And I don't think that a, just because there are these shared features that we see in groups of organisms that naturally cluster together that a creator was trying to deceive us. Because again, Richard Owen didn't see it that way. He actually mm -hmm. saw homologies as the, the quintessential example of design because he marveled that a creator could produce archetypes that were so robust that not only could you then have organisms that conformed to that form or to that archetype, but the archetype could be varied to such a degree that it could produce such a wide range of functional features to create biological diversity that we see. And he argued that for a creator to do both simultaneously is the, the, the ultimate expression of design. And, and so I don't see a creator being deceptive at all. In fact, if you, you go to our website, reasons.org, and, and search uh, for a blog article, I think it's entitled, Does old earth creationism make God deceptive, we actually address that very concern hmm. that Richard Dawkins raised. Uh, because there, there, were, there are theistic evolutionists who have criticized old earth creationism for that very reason, that, that it, you know, if it looks like evolution, but you're saying that somehow God designed it to look like evolution, that God is being deceptive. Well, I think the natural interpretation of the data is that it's designed and that these are shared designs. That's how, you know, a biologist interpreted these features before Darwin. And, and I don't think anybody felt God was being deceptive. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I want to jump in and finish off uh, this um, 
this video by, by Dawkins. I find it extremely hard to imagine how any creationist who actually bothered to listen to that could possibly doubt the fact of evolution. But they don't listen. I mean, your, your question is a, is a perfectly good question, but it's not, it's not really relevant because what they do is simply stick their fingers in their ear and say, la, la, la. They know what's true because it's in the holy book. All right, so is that what we are doing? We are not listening. I, it doesn't sound like that was your response, is I don't want to listen to what you're saying. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I, you know, again, I, I have a PhD in biochemistry, and I do understand the, the evidence that is presented in, in favor of, you know, common descent. And, and, and again, uh, you know, this idea of universal common descent. Uh, and, and I do, again, recognize that within particular worldviews or particular approaches to science, that data is very compelling in terms of, you know, again, shared evolutionary ancestry. But because of the underdetermination problem and because of the fact that as a, a Christian, I don't feel compelled to only pursue mechanistic explanations for features in nature, that I, I think I could interpret that data just as reasonably well you know, from a design framework. Good. Um, so there's two aspects of uh, the genome that I would love to discuss. And my, I'm glad you said you could give us some extra time because I'm running out of time and there's still questions that are coming in the live chat that I would love to address. Uh, but two questions that relate to the genome, and then I want to get to um, the vestigial structures. Uh, but the first one came in actually on Twitter, and this is evidence for evolution. It said, viruses exist which infect mammals and embed their DNA into mammals' eggs and sperm cells. Most are harmless and thus get passed uh, along um, silently over millennia. Some exist in the same locations in human, ape, and monkey genomes. Think about it. So uh, what would you say to this idea that these viruses are embedded in the genome, the same place in apes and humans, showing that our genome uh, and that virus had that ancestor at some point that it infected? Yeah, well, in our book, Thinking About Evolution, we've got a chapter where we address that larger concern and also in the book, Who Was Adam as well. And, you know, the, the whole argument is predicated on uh, the fact that we are assuming that these so-called endogenous retroviruses are non-functional, right? And, and what we've learned over the last couple of decades is that not only are endogenous retroviruses, but other classes of, of so-called junk DNA actually are functional. And many of the functions relate to, uh, uh, relate to gene regulation. And in fact, we're beginning to develop a good understanding as to why these sequences actually bear resemblance to endogenous retroviruses or why pseudogenes bear resemblance to, to genes, that there are, again, theoretical frameworks that are emerging in molecular biology that, that suggest reasons why those similar similarities and designs are necessary for the function. For example, endogenous retroviruses actually are expressed at high levels during retroviral infections of cells. And the thought is that this actually may be a mechanism to ward off uh, the retrovirus infection, that it's a, a type of what would be biochemists would call competitive inhibition, right? Or the similarity between pseudogenes and genes finds explanation in something known as the competitive endogenous RNA hypothesis, and I don't have time to get into it. So in other words, uh, the whole argument 
that that is being made when we appeal to endogenous retroviruses or junk DNA in a general sense is that these sequences are non-functional. And I would agree if they were non-functional and they're shared and they, they can be used to create evolutionary trees, then it doesn't make sense in a design framework. It does really, I think, tip the scale in favor of, a, of an evolutionary history. But if you discover that these sequences are actually functional, then you could legitimately interpret them from a design framework. And this is exactly the case. In fact, right now, based on the ENCODE project, it looks as if virtually all the features in the human genome bear some kind of functionality. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, and so um, that, again, provides us with, a, I think, a legitimate framework to view these features from, from a design standpoint as opposed to an evolutionary standpoint. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I just love the advances in science and hearing about all these new discoveries that are they're finding uses and, and and features that we just didn't know were functioning in that way. It's so cool to see. Um, now, the second aspect of the genome is what I often hear presented is chromosome two uh, is evidence of evolution that that humans have twenty three chromosomes, apes have twenty four. Uh, we have chromosome two that has been looks like it has been fused of two ape chromosomes, which is why we have one less. Um, kind of why does this seem to point to evolution quickly because we're running out of time and what would be your response to chromosome two as being evidence for evolution yeah well i mean in a sec in a sense the fusion of, of human chromosome you know uh, uh, what appears to be the fusion of human chromosome two uh doesn't necessarily provide i think uh, prima facie evidence for evolution but it's interpreted with an evolutionary framework where the argument would be Humans and chimps shared a, a common ancestor, and uh, that ancestor had, you know, what, whatever, 24, you know, autosomes. And uh, as the human lineage diverged, there was two of the chromosomes that fused to create, you know, uh, human, human chromosome two. And this is why humans have 23 and, and chimps have 24. So in other words, evolution becomes the explanatory framework to account for the difference in chromosome numbers, it's not necessarily direct evidence for common ancestry in that sense. When I look at human chromosome two, I have to agree it does indeed look like it was a fusion event. But in order for that fusion event to be successful, uh, re requires a sequence of highly improbable events. Like telomere-telomere fusion is very, very un unusual. And even if you did get telomere-telomere fusion, if you have an organism that has one less, a, a fewer number of chromosomes compared to everybody else in the population, that, that individual is likely to be uh, uh, non-fertile if it does in fact survive. And uh, if indeed it somehow is fertile and the offspring has this now a new number of chromosomes, there's going to have to be some huge evolutionary advantage for it to take hold in a population. So these are highly unlikely uh, events to take place that are stacked on top of each other. And in uh, thinking about evolution, we talk about work that was done a few years ago where researchers were trying to uh, create uh, yeast that had a single chromosome. Yeast have 16 chromosomes. And so they were trying to do chromosome chromosome fusions at the telomere end, telomere telomere fusions to create one giant chromosome in yeast to try to understand 
how this process could happen from an evolutionary perspective. And kind of a long story short, in order to pull off these fusions, it required a, a, a very elaborate strategy that had to be yeah. executed very precisely in order to carry it out. Uh, and, and what was required would, would be virtually impossible to achieve in a natural setting. Uh, and so that work actually demonstrates that for that kind of fusion to happen, intelligent agency must be involved. So I think a, a, a plausible explanation for that fusion is that there's some kind of functional reason for it that we don't know yet, and that, that it must have been the handiwork of a creator to pull it off, that it could not have been uh, done through natural process mechanisms. Yeah, I think there's just so many aspects like that in our universe where you can even from the RTB model of the formation of the moon or these different things as you can look at it in kind of a, a natural mechanistic framework, so to speak, but that mechanism has to be so insanely fine tuned and precise in order to get it done. It still needs a mind behind it, just like a factory can build a car, but who built the factory, who made the machines that can design that car. And so it doesn't necessarily remove a designer uh, just because there might be some sort of mechanism that can explain an aspect of it. So, uh, well, we're, we're short on time, but I want to address one more really, um, I guess, popular argument. And this video actually had like, I think 20 to 30 million views on YouTube, very popular to look at vestigial structures. And so I want to play a couple sections of this video and kind of get your responses to human evolution that we can see in our own bodies. Your body is a temple, but it's also a museum of natural history. Look closely and you'll see parts that aren't there because you need them, but because your animal ancestors did. No longer serving their previous function, but not costly enough to have disappeared. These remnants of our deep history only make sense within the framework of evolution by natural selection. So before we jump into these examples, I just want to point out again, because we're going to give this explanation, you hear it all the time. What we're about to hear only makes sense within a framework of evolution by natural selection. Um, it seems like that's always said, but there are other explanations, I think, that make a lot of sense from a Christian perspective that are just kind of left out or ignored. Is that like a common thing that you hear or that even you see of, I mean, maybe within the, even the scientific literature, is there kind of this like, well, but you didn't mention this. Does that happen frequently? Yeah, well, you know, in, in, in all these examples that we're going to see, uh, of so-called vestigial structures that are part of our, our body, we're, we're learning that these structures actually do serve function. And, and the function that they serve may be not the same function as in, in the same corresponding structures in other organisms, but they still serve functions. And so, you know, uh, you know to call them vestigial may not necessarily be an appropriate hmm. description. Another point real quickly, and that is, you know, prior to Darwin, I keep going back to Richard Owen and his idea of the archetype. People were aware of what we now today call vestigial structures. So, for example, uh, Owen and his contemporaries were aware of the fact that a whale has a pelvis, right? And, and the way that they interpreted that from an archetype standpoint was, well, of course, the whale would have a pelvis because if it didn't, it would no longer conform to the archetype. So they were seeing the archetype in the same vein that we would mm. see designs uh, in an architectural sense, that sometimes yeah. there are features in, in architecture that don't, seem, don't serve a purpose, but they're there because they're 
that for features or other design, you know, elements. Yeah. Good. All right. So well, let's kind of work through these and I would love for you to kind of comment and share what it is that we are discovering about these different vestigial structures uh, that maybe are not vestigial anymore. With your arm on a flat surface, push your thumb against your pinky and tip your hand slightly up. If you see a raised band in the middle of your wrist, you've got a vestigial muscle in your forearm. That tendon you see connects to the palmaris longus, a muscle that around 10 to 15% of people are missing on one or both of their arms. It's not the only leftover muscle that we've got. Look at the three that are attached to our outer ear. We can't get much movement out of these muscles, especially compared to some of our mammal relatives who use them to locate the sources of sounds. Presumably, this would have been quite helpful for early nocturnal mammals. All right, so first is leftover muscles. Uh, what would you have to say about this? Well, you know, we, we are discovering that things like the palmaris longus uh, actually serve an important function. The, the erector pili, which causes uh, you know, goosebumps in humans uh, actually uh, serves an important function as well uh, that has to do with positioning of nerves, um, effector nerves. So to call these things vestigial, I think, is, is really uh, a misnomer. Uh, and, it, and here's a place where I, I think you could argue that the evolutionary paradigm actually stultis, stultifies scientific advance. So often we hear the complaint that if you adopt a creation model approach, you're standing in the way of science. To say God did it shuts down scientific investigation. Well, the same is true from the evolutionary paradigm as well. Once you label something as junk DNA or as a vestigial structure, then you just assume it has no function and it's just the leftover remnants of an evolutionary history and you stop investigating it. And almost invariably, we discover that these things we thought were vestigial that were not important actually do play a critical biological role that is necessary. And this is true with these quote unquote leftover muscles. We're discovering that they have function. And it's similar even to like the appendix where just be, they think that just because we can live without it, so you can take out your palmaris longus or you take out your appendix and you can still survive, therefore it's unneeded leftover. And it's like, well, no, it can still play a function and you can still live without that function, but it still plays a function. Uh, the other one that you did mention is the next one coming up. So let me show this uh, part of the video here. You can see another futile effort by our vestigial body parts when you get goosebumps. When we're cold, tiny muscles attached to our body hairs contract, pulling the hair upright, which causes the surrounding skin to form a bump. For our furry mammal relatives, the raised hair increases the amount of space for insulation, helping them stay warm. Birds can do this too. You've probably seen a puffy pigeon on a cold day. Adrenaline is one of the hormones involved in the body's response to cold temperatures, and it's also part of the fight or flight response. So it helps some animals appear larger when they're threatened. And it may be why surprising and emotional turns in music can give some people goosebumps. All right, so here this video says uh, this feature, the human body, is futile. Um, but you're saying that's maybe not the case, and we're starting to find out a function for it. Yes. In fact, uh, uh, just as a, a way of, you know, giving people an opportunity to dig deeper if they'd like, uh, recently I wrote a blog article uh, uh, about the, the important role that goosebumps are playing, or at least the erector pili muscle is playing. And as I mentioned, it actually has an architectural role where it, it actually serves to position the effector nerve in, in the right 
locations so that, again, uh, our bodies are able to respond to, uh, uh, you know, environmental signals, environmental cues. Uh, so, yeah, so it's uh, available on our website at reasons.org. Also on our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, um, there's a, a video that I did on the pulmaris longus muscle and, again, why that muscle actually uh, is critical, why it plays an important role and why it's not appropriately understood as vestigial. Wonderful. All right. So I got one more here, but I will uh, find that article on the website and I'll post that in the description for below for those who are watching here on YouTube. Uh, here's the last uh, proof of evolution that you can find in your body. And then there's our tail. At the end of our spine are a set of fused vertebrae. Some people have three, some people have five. We call it the tailbone. It now serves as an anchor for some pelvic muscles, but it's also what's left of our ancestors' tails. Every one of us actually had a tail at one point. When the basic body plan is being laid out at around four weeks of gestation, human embryos closely resemble embryos of other vertebrates. And that includes a tail with 10 to 12 developing vertebrae. In many other animals, it continues to develop into a proper tail. But in humans and other apes, the cells in the tail are programmed to die a few weeks after they appear. Very rarely though, a mutation allows the ancestral blueprint to prevail and a human baby will be born with a true vestigial tail. All right, there's the last one, is the vestigial tail and the tailbone. Uh, quick comments on this. Well, I mean, you know, even in the video, they pointed out that the coccyx is actually a point of muscle attachment. Yeah. And, you know, and again, the, the, the tail that forms is not a true tail. It's really a pseudo tail. And uh, to, to interpret it as being kind of a, a, a vestigial of evolution, I think, is really not a legitimate interpretation. Anatomically speaking, it's not a tail whatsoever. It's, again, properly understood as a pseudo tail. Okay, wonderful. All right, now you did say you could go a little over. We're five minutes over, but I have some live questions. Can I take some more of your time? Sure, sure. Wonderful. Uh, okay, um, awesome. So uh, the first one that came in uh, from, I believe, a youth pastor on YouTube uh, and said a um, little bit different. We didn't get to Neanderthals and hominids, but he said, could Dr. Rana give a biblical explanation of why Neanderthals were not created in the image of God? Yeah, um, you know, and, um, you know, in uh, the, the book, Thinking About Evolution, uh, our, the late Sue Dykes, who uh, is a paleoanthropologist or was a paleoanthropologist, wrote a, a chapter about uh, Neanderthals and their, you know, cognitive capacities. But, you know, uh, bottom line is that, um, uh, that, that Neanderthals were not like us, uh, that, that biologically speaking, that there are some significant anatomical differences between humans, modern humans and Neanderthals. There were developmental differences that we can infer from the, the fossil record because we have Neanderthals at various stages of development. Their developmental trajectory was very different than modern humans. And genetically speaking, we can see some significant differences between humans and Neanderthals that relate to cognitive development. The brain structure of modern humans is very different than, than that of Neanderthals, where we have an expanded parietal lobe, whereas Neanderthals had an underdeveloped parietal lobe. And this has to do with the difference in the skull shape between humans and Neanderthals. But the bottom line is that when you put all of this together, it, Neanderthals were a separate species, and 
it really is questionable if they had the cognitive abilities of, of modern humans. And, and it's questionable if Neanderthals had the ability for language or had a capacity for symbolism. And so it's only human beings that have advanced cognitive abilities that show uh, the, the capacity for symbolism, which I see as a, 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 a feature or a manifestation of the image of God. So I see, you know, biological differences and behavioral differences between humans and Neanderthals that I think is, is consistent with thinking of Neanderthals as being creatures similar to how we would think of chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas, not to see them as image bearers, which is, I think, arguably uniquely a, a human quality. And interestingly enough, there's a growing number of anthropologists who are actually embracing the idea of human exceptionalism, that really human beings do stand apart from all other creatures. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would just address uh, the person who asked this. Uh, you know, uh, Fuzz and I did a whole interview on Neanderthals and bio and uh, evidence of creation from biochemistry. Uh, that was before YouTube. So that's on podcast. So I, that's another one that I'll have to go back and find on my website. And I will put the link below. So if you're watching after the fact, you should be able to see that. Uh, one of the facts of evolution I found uh, or that was presented to me on uh, on Twitter was uh, this. It says, the best fact of evolution is the fact that virtually all life and earth sciences of all branches accept evolution as the indispensable foundation of biology and that it is perfectly rational for lay people to defer to those who have dedicated their lives to studying the topic in question. So for you being in the ac academic world, um, is there truth to this that virtually all life and earth sciences um, see evolution is the indispensable foundation of biology? Uh, well, to be fair, it is the, the prevailing explanation for biological origins. And, you know, uh, uh, and because of that, you know, again, there are, you know, many people that embrace, again, the, the evolutionary paradigm. And I, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for a lay person to defer to the, to experts or to defer to what is the scientific consensus. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, th this consensus is, is propped up, in my opinion, by the influence of methodological naturalism, that, that many people that embrace an, an evolutionary interpretation of life's history also embrace methodological naturalism. People that uh, argue that there's alternative philosophical framework for science, maybe something that we might call theistic science, actually see many significant problems with evolutionary explanations and actually think that a design model or a creation model is more compelling. So I can point to a, a large number of very impressive people who have impressive scientific credentials who uh, really... Uh, question whether or not the evolutionary paradigm actually uh, can account for life's origin. And I think it's important to recognize that in science, uh, consensus is something we want to pay attention to, but scientific theories are not determined based on a democratic vote, where the most popular theories are the true theories. Ultimately, it's based on how well, oops, sorry, how well does something conform to the evidence? And right. You know, and I think the issue here is that when you embrace methodological naturalism, you no longer are 
operating in a framework where science is about discovering truth about the world, but it's about discovering a natural process explanation, whether that explanation actually is a robust explanation. That's good. Awesome. So one of those scientists, a uh, question came in here for you from SlamRN, and it's, uh, what do Dr. Rana and Dr. Behe disagree on when it comes to evolution? What are Behe's greatest flaws in his reasoning? Can you give an example? And then later asked, is uh, irreducible complexity a good argument for design? Yeah. Well, okay. So that's a, a great question. And I, I would say that uh, uh, Michael Behe and I uh, strongly agree that uh, a design framework is the best way to think about uh, the, the, the origin and the structure of biological systems. Uh, Behe is, is, uh, holds to uh, common descent. He would hold to the idea of, I, I, I think, at least limited common descent, where he sees design that then is in, that's instantiated in nature that then uh, evolutionary mechanisms account for, again, uh, some features that we see within the biological order, uh, I would hold to a, a limited, a form of limited common descent as well. But maybe Behe and I might draw uh, the lines in, in different places when it comes to that. Um, uh, I don't know that I, I would say that that Behe has significant flaws in his reasoning um, uh, necessarily. I just think that. Uh, I choose to, uh, uh, you know, to see, you know, shared features as reflecting, you know, common design more so than I think Michael Behe does as a, an advocate for, again, at least limited common descent. I don't know if he advocates universal common descent. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, Good. With, with respect to the question of irreducible complexity, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with that concept where, you know, I, I do agree that human designs oftentimes are irreducibly complex, meaning that they're made up of a number of component parts that all have to interact in a precise manner and have precise properties in order for that system to have minimal function. And to me, irreducible complexity is a signature for design. Where I think I would disagree with Michael Behe, at least as in how I understand his argument, is I'm not convinced that there is not uh, there's not at least a plausible evolutionary way to account for the origin of irreducibly complex systems. I think through the, the use of co-option, uh, you could actually account for uh, the uh, irreducible complexity through evolutionary means. Now, have uh, evolutionary biologists successfully done that? That's another question entirely. So the, the way that Michael Behe frames the argument is that at least how I how I read Behe, and again if I'm wrong about this I'm willing to be corrected uh, is that evolutionary mechanisms cannot produce irreducibly complex systems therefore these systems must be designed whereas you know uh, I'm not sure that 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 argument is vulnerable to somebody coming along and saying well here's a, a plausible reasonable way in which evolutionary mechanisms could produce irreducibly complex systems and the, the whole argument unravels. I would much rather uh, argue that irreducibly complex systems is a signature for design. Therefore, if I see that, it's reasonable to, for me to think that these systems are designed until somebody can demonstrate uh, otherwise. 
that's uh, good. You know, through a robust evolutionary model. So, yeah. you know, again, that's why I kind of have this uh, ambivalence towards that particular argument. Yeah, that's good. So I would love to just kind of finish getting kind of your your view and addressing this question that came in saying, uh, I'm confused a little. What is the model being presented? Did God create each individual species and the natural selection was the means by which an animal evolved over time? So no macro evolution. So what is kind of the model that you are presenting? Yeah, it, in a nutshell, I, I'm arguing that uh, um, that there are going to be certain uh, core designs in nature that it, that a creator would have instantiated, uh, and that once those designs are in place, that natural selection can create variation of those designs. So, I'm perfectly comfortable with what we might call microevolution, what we might call speciation, uh, but I think when it comes to evolutionary mechanisms generating bona fide biological novelty, I think that's where that, that natural selection breaks down or loses its capacity to 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 create. I see natural selection as a fine-tuning mechanism and I, and I and I would say that the that if there are these novelties that we see in life's history that are being introduced, the introduction of those novelties reflects the the work of a creator. Now, precisely how that creator is achieving that becomes a question of divine action which is, you know, uh, which is very complex, but so I would see it as kind of a, again, God creating designs uh, that then uh, are allowed to vary through, uh, you know, microevolutionary type processes. Wonderful. Uh, so last thing I want to do is I, I didn't want this whole interview just to be a uh, critique, I guess, of evolution and showing kind of the, the issues of evolution, although that wanted to be the main focus, but really to, to make a case for uh, a Christian view and a comment. I love the comment that just came in because it's how I wanted to finish the show. Uh, Zero Prime wrote in and said, I think the problem with a creation explanation is that no aspect of that idea can be tested or reproduced. Therefore, it is impossible to subject, to subject it to peer review. And now I know that RTB has the tested testable creation model. So could you finish kind of in our time here of laying out what is the creation model that RTB presents that is testable and subject to review? Yeah, well, you know, we, we've written uh, quite a few books at Reasons to Believe that present features or aspects of our creation model. There's a book, Origins of Life, that presents a creation model for, the, for, the, for abiogenesis. There is a, a, a book, Who is Adam?, where we lay out a creation model for the origin of humanity. And, and in all of our work, that creation model concept is essentially in play. So, you know, uh, even like in my book, The Cell's Design, where I, I uh, present a revitalized watchmaker argument based on the fact that biochemical systems uh, appear to be uh, similar to human designs. And and on that basis of similarity, again, construct kind of a, 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 a contemporary watchmaker argument focusing on, again, the molecular features in living systems. But in that book, we present something uh, known as the, the watchmaker prediction, where we would argue that if indeed uh, or biochemical systems are the, the work of a creator, uh, that we would predict that there are uh, design features in the cell that are going to anticipate uh, future scientific uh, discoveries, or sorry, future technological advances. I, I, I misspoke there. So in other words, that 
as new technology is developed, uh, we would predict that that new technology would have examples uh, there's been a number of instances where we've actually seen that come to bear where people have invented new technologies only to discover that those new technologies are already evident inside the cell. So that would be an, an example of where we can make a, you know, make a prediction uh, that could, you know, that that is in principle falsifiable. And would you say kind of lastly, and I wish we could have gotten in more time with this, but we are way over. Uh, to me, the Cambrian explosion is one of the, in my opinion, one of the best scientific discoveries uh, that lines up so perfectly with the creation model and does present uh, some issues with a, at least a slow, gradual evolutionary process. Um, so is that a way that we can also say, like, not only are there aspects of the creation model that you here have tested, that there are predictions that can be made and tested just like any other scientific theory, but we also have an explanation that matches the evidence that we have scientifically, just in like a um, a criminal murder trial, you have an explanation of, of what happened. And if that explanation fits the scientific data, then the scientific data is what is has been tested. And here's an explanation that perfectly fits. Maybe that works. Uh, so can we kind of make both of those pre presentations and, and illustrations of the data scientifically is being tested, the creation model fits that data, and there are aspects of your creation model that can also be tested? Yeah. And, and that's a really good point because you know, uh, part of essentially testing a model would be uh, evaluating its explanatory power, right? And, and you know, and in, a, in effect, what we have with the evolutionary framework is a narrative, right? Is a narrative about life's history that presumably uh, explains why things look the way they look in, in biology. And likewise, you know, we could argue that we could produce a similar narrative as well that has, you know, explanatory power that accounts for why things look the way they do. And in fact, I would argue that the creation model has a greater uh, explanatory power than the evolutionary model when it comes to things like the origin of life or, right. again, the, the origin of eukaryotic cells or the origin of, of body plans. You know, and one thing that's really interesting to me is that you know, every time we see transitions in life's history that where we go from one regime of complexity to another, that these all happen explosively without any evidence for intermediary grades uh, taking place. They just the, these things just seem to come into existence out of nowhere. And, and then and because of that, there's not a robust evolutionary accounting for them. Uh, yet, from a creation model perspective, that's exactly what we would expect the record of nature to look like is it would be there that when innovation happens, it happens suddenly and explosively. Okay, good. Well, um, I, Fuzz, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. Again, I want to kind of present this book that we've talked about. One thing I love about this is when it's 25 questions being answered, uh, it's about 300 or so pages. You're talking about 12 pages a question, right? And so it's something that's easy. And if you have a qu certain question, you can open up and you get 12 pages. It's it's good researched information that will give you a detailed answer, but it's not so long that you get lost. And so it is a great place to start addressing some of the main issues. So thank you for Reasons to Believe can, and producing this and you contributing to this. And thank you for joining me on the show and um, helping explain some of these big questions that people have. Well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. 
All right, guys, and thank you so much. I know there are more questions that you have and I see them coming in. Uh, I'm gonna try once a month to do a call-in show where you can actually call back and forth and, and, and or not call back and forth, but call me and we can talk back and forth through some of these issues that are happening. I'm still getting set up here in this new studio, but I'm excited for the interviews that are coming in the future. So please uh, subscribe and follow, like it, share it if you haven't done so already and um, come back again as this is a weekly show helping you think deeply about Christianity, to know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. So thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this conversation was a blessing to you, and I will see you again next week. Bye, everybody.